0: I love it when you read
1: to me. Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Liebewitz.
0: I am Janice Liebewitz. You are my People of the Book. And my guest today, really no stranger to 101.95M, because I think um, he used to... Be quite a regular on Howard Feldman's show. My guest today is Richard Sutton. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And we are going to be chatting about Richard's new book, Thrive, The Power of Resilience. But um, just to give some background, your previous books, Stress Code, Stress Proof, you've had over 20 years experience in the world of professional sport. Um, you, You basically are an industry leader. You have um, worked with professional sports people, some of the top-ranked sports teams and players in the world. You've advised them on performance, resilience, and adaptability. And this new book, Thrive, The Power of Resilience, I have to be upfront and honest with you. I am not a lover of the word resilience. <laughs> I have to be totally honest. Um, I see the word. I hear the word. Even the concept, it just gives me the krills I, I just think to myself, Why do we have to be resilient? you know why, why do we have to always overcome adversity? So I picked up your book and i was I was you know quite quite interested to to read about why why we have to overcome it, and I was interested to to learn i mean we 're going to get into it, and you 're going to do most of the talking, not me but you start with a very open and honest telling of your, your early life and the adversity you faced. And you say that we are hardwired to be resilient.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I
0: was interested to hear that.
1: <laughs> I, I think that uh, we're hardwired to, to overcome adversity. If you look at our ancestral past, I mean, what, what human beings have, have had to overcome is just, it's, you, you can't, you, you can't even put a number on it or you can't put it in context. It's it just the, the famines and the droughts and the wars and the conflicts and the climate change. And the, it's just like crazy.
0: And the and load we, shedding.
1: And the load <laughs> and The worst of all, the worst of all, the load shedding. Um, but we got through it and we get through it. And um, I think that human beings do, do have this capacity. We all have the capacity to, to get through those hard moments. We don't have a choice, to be quite frank. Um, but what I say in the book is, is not so much that we're hardwired to be resilient. We're hardwired to, to navigate crisis and overcome complexity and, and overcome challenge and hurdles and obstacles and everything that place in front of us. But the, the difference, the differentiator between resilience and overcoming adversity or challenge, the differentiate is that we can overcome the challenge, but often it's at tremendous personal cost, emotional, physical, mental. And where resilience differs uh, to a certain degree is that resilience is this framework of skills, um, these abilities that you develop over the course of your life that, that helps you navigate the complexity that is life. But not to the extent that now compromises itself. In fact, every time you subject it to a challenge or a change or setback, it actually makes you more proficient and more skilled and better at coping and better at life.
0: So instead of, of that initial gut instinct of, of just lying on the floor and curling up in a fetal position and saying, I don't want anything more to do with this. Um, let's just back up. <laughs> And, and let me ask you, the definition of resilience, I mean, I know that the Oxford Dictionary defines it as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and its toughness. Um, you defined it in, in a bit more detail. You defined it as not surviving but rather overcoming adversity. And you say that it's a learned skill. A collection of behaviors, um, and psychological traits that when unified allow us to realize our dreams and our fullest potential. And I think that's such a beautiful definition. I think it's, you know, Oxford is, is quite, um, quite English about it. It's quite, uh, stiff upper lip about it, but <laughs> I think you, that's you put more I'm human, wondering. you are very clinical. You put a more human, uh, feel to it. That's, and I think yeah. that that's, that's really beautiful. Um, you also added in the book, I mean we're getting down to to. we were we were chatting before before this 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 interview, and I was very honest with you, I said i the science is lost on me. <laughs> I don't understand science at all, and obviously, you are scientific about how you've gone into this and and how you've you've looked at resilience, but you start the book with your own story. Which obviously we're not going to give away here. I want, you know, I want the listener to, to go out and buy this book. And, and that's how you learned about how people are hardwired to be resilient. And in a nutshell, where did this idea of resilience come to you?
1: Well, it's, it's like a, a question I get asked quite often because uh, I've written, obviously the previous books are very centered around stress in, in one's personal capacity and managing the stresses of others and being a successful leader. That's the second book. Um, and it's now almost kind of moved into the next phase of, of the storytelling, which is this concept of resilience. Now, the thing is that it's not about resilience per se. It's not about stress management per se. It's about self-actualization. It's about being the best versions that we can. It's about all the gifts and all the abilities that we've been given, these like incredible traits, and bringing them to the fore. And the ultimate expression of that is this resilience, this word that um is has been very overused. Absolutely. But this, this, this collection of skills that really brings out the best version of yourself and this, this journey for me, I'm, I, I, in the book, I'm, I'm quite explicit where so I say, I came from a very, very difficult background, a uh, very challenging background. And many people would have written me off. In fact, many people did. Family members, like you, you're not going to amount too much in life. And, um, they've reconciled to that. And as was Einstein and as many other people in history, um, also had, um, this, this perception, um, that, that followed them and, the reality is that I was fortunate enough to be exposed to different environments, and within those environments, I was exposed to individuals who themselves had developed these resilience skills, these core core traits, which helped them navigate their challenges. And by being in an environment, it, it was... Uh, imposed upon me to a certain degree, but we really become our environment. So I started to absorb, um, these, these skills and, and these behaviors and, and it became very much a reflection of who I ultimately became. And it was the catalyst to major changes at, at various levels in my life. Um, that, that really I, I have so much to be grateful for. And the book is, it's on, it's certainly it's a book that is, is about self-actualization and potential about being successful in, in how we want to be successful in life. But it's also, um, a book that from, from my personal like reflection standpoint is, is that is an acknowledgement that anything is possible and we can change and we're not bound by our immediate circumstances and certainly not bound by our past. If we're willing to grow and we're willing to learn and we're willing to expand who we are.
0: I love it, and and you were lucky enough to be introduced to this concept of positive reframing by Billie Jean King, and that was a, a an amazing well, chance. I won't say it was chance meeting, um, where she spoke to you about this positive reframing, and she said these three things to you. She spoke to you about positive reframing. She told you that pressure is privilege, and that all champions adapt. And I think for me, I mean, it's it's. The book itself is—it's—it's it's not a small book. It's—it's—it's got—it's hmm. it's got a lot of depth. So there's a lot, a lot to be taken from it. But for me, these were from this one person. For me, these three points were, I think, three standouts from the whole book. And I think pressure is privilege. I—I I, had—I—I I kept coming back to that and rereading it. And and thinking, wow! <laughs> All I could say is, wow! What an aha moment! And clearly, it was for you too.
1: Very much so. Very much so. And the thing is that it. it I think what it it also shows us, and it's a perfect example of, is the influence that other people have on our lives. So it was very much an aha moment in terms of the messaging, the messaging being that I was so fixated on everything that wasn't easy in my life and everything that was hard in my life and, and not seeing some of the positives and not seeing the position that I was given and why essentially I was ex- experiencing what I was experiencing. Um, so certainly that, that message was it came at the right time yeah. from someone I trusted and respected and an icon. Um and and that being followed by champions adapt. It was like all all the things that I kind of struggled with in life were summed up in in two sentences or two words. But but essentially, at the end of the day, it was just the importance of opening up, sharing your experiences, expressing, I guess, a certain extent or degree of vulnerability, and and allowing others to help you in the way that they know how to. Um, and I, I think that that really is one of the, the, also one of the bigger messages from that interaction.
0: Yeah. You speak a lot about um, getting support, having support from people and um, the right people. Um the the concept of all champions adapt moving further along, you talk about personality traits and the different personality traits that, that, that are, we are made up of and, you, there's, there's a whole assessment about how you assess what, what makes up your personality. And then there's, there's a question like, what if I don't have those personality traits, um, that, that cause me to be resilient? Does that mean I'm not resilient? I can't be resilient. And, and I mean, that would cause panic, I would imagine. And well, then what happens?
1: So, <laughs> so. So just to expound a little bit on, on the, the question statement. Um, so, so if you look at, I mean, there's been so much research into what creates re- resilient individuals, resilient groups, resilient teams, resilient countries. There's, there's been a fair amount of research. It's, it's been a topic of, of great interest because of all the challenges that the world is facing. And w- what is repeatedly been established is that Those individuals or teams or groups that tend to be a little bit more extroverted, a little bit more outgoing, are more resilient. Those individuals or groups who tend to be open and adaptable and flexible tend to be more resilient. Those individuals who tend to be agreeable as opposed to saying no, 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 and having this rigidity in their lives tend to be more resilient. Those individuals who optimistic and and always look towards the future as a a positive place to to land or or aspire to, tend to be more resilient. Whereas those individuals who are are more emotionally volatile or or neurotic or suffer from anxiety tend not to be resilient. And and that's really kind of what what the research is showing is that if we can steer our personality in these directions, we can actually overcome our challenges with greater ease and, and more effectiveness. Now, as you say, like the question that, that I asked um in the book is that, okay, so these are the fundamental character traits that determine resilience, but what happens if I'm not an extrovert and what happens if I'm generally not that agreeable or what happens if I'm not that optimistic, like what do I, what do I do next? And I explain a couple of things in the book. The first is that we can be anything we want to be. So I'll give you my example, and that's the best example to give. And, and that example is that I'm a total introvert, like an absolute, absolute introvert. Um, introversion is, is very interesting because it's not just your perception of yourself and social relationships. It's actually a neurochemical phenomenon. So I, I know you don't like the sound. Look, <laughs> no, it,
0: it comes so, on the territory. Go ahead. <laughs> uh,
1: introverts generally, they produce a fair amount of dopamine, um, to the extent that any external stimulation can throw them over the edge. It's too much dopamine and they feel very fatigued very, very quickly. Um, they tend to prefer another neurochemical to help them with cognition and focus and attention and drive. And that's acetylcholine. So there's a, there's a chemical profile that introverts have very, very simply put. Um, extroverts on the other hand need to stimulate these systems, need to stimulate the dopaminergic system. So they'll, they'll go and connect with people. They like noise. They like bustle. They like music. they like, these are the things that feed them that make them feel alive and make them feel whole. And they don't get tired. The more, the more chaos, the better for them. And that's the extrovert. But the reality is we can be whatever we want. We can actually choose. And when I say that we can choose, my professional job now is totally Totally extroverted. Totally. I, I, I can tell you that it is it is 100 <laughs> percent the job for an extrovert. And it was over time that I was able to develop myself in this way. So at home I'm an introvert. At work I'm an extrovert. And we have this power to use. And many of us have already kind of found that this is possible. Again, with openness, instead of saying absolutely no, and I don't want to change and I don't want to explore new realities, just stop, pause, and 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 said, Well, let let me let me just maybe try a little bit, or let me do, be a little bit more flexible than I have before. And so we have the, we have the choice. And if it's important to us, COVID taught us this. If it's important to us, we will change.
0: And, but, and most of us are actually combinations. We're not yes. all that one thing no, or no, two no, things. No, we're we're a, combinations of all the traits.
1: Exactly. It's ex- exactly. It's a scale. So, so, but that's, you know, this, this whole continuum is, is, is a very subtle scale and we can choose to be where we want to be and where we need to be. But what I also mentioned in the book is that like the way we behave and the way we view the world and our perceptions is very, very influenced by our health and is very influenced by our neurochemistry. We can do things that actually change the way we perceive the world. So there's this big movement to cold exposure at this particular point in history. Everyone's jumping into cold water. I'm, uh, living in Cape Town, and uh, live right across the, the road from Saunders, and it's you need a ticket to get down to Saunders. There, are, I mean, the entire city ball and Atlantic seaboard is sitting at Saunders <laughs> Beach at, from seven to eight or nine in the morning. It's like it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's like so there's, there's this big movement to cold exposure. And, and the reason why is because cold exposure has a very profound effect on dopamine. So dopamine is this molecule that helps us with attention and focus and drive and goal orientation and creativity. And most individuals who are getting this exposure to cold now become, I wouldn't say addicted, but, but they become absolutely fixated on this feeling of clarity. And now they go and expose themselves to something very unpleasant for a period of 10 to 20 minutes, just because what they're going for the next six hours is just something quite remarkable and it affects their personality. So for the next six hours, they, they're really starting to show it. But the more you repeat a certain behavior or traits or habit, the more it becomes who you are. And eventually you don't need the cold water in order to have this, this set of experiences as your base template. So it's, it's just, um, it's, it's amazing how, how we have the power to choose the direction that we go in life.
0: It's that whole, and also that whole Wim Hof breathing thing. In- <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, so that's, that's also with the whole cognitive reappraisal, um, concept, which is, like you say, the most influential of all
1: resilience skills yes 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 so so there, there are I mean there's there's certain personality traits which are inherent or that can be developed but from a skill perspective in terms of a repertoire of tools that we can use in adversity and challenge and change and setbacks and obstacles and failures and everything that we don't want to go through in life, One of the most powerful, one of the most powerful resources that we have is the way we perceive an event. And typically we see a hurdle or an obstacle as, as this like, oh, this is so daunting and this is so challenging. And, um, it's why now? Why me? It's my life's already difficult. And, and the reality is that if we can step away from it just for a moment uh, and distance ourselves and look at the perspectives surrounding that and look how this, this challenge is going to force us to grow. It's forced us to move in directions we, we've never moved and and it actually becomes an enabler. And the next time we're with a challenge to this similar extent or to a lesser or greater extent, we're well, more equipped and, and we're better equipped. In fact, we're not only equipped to overcome the challenge, but we start helping others because we've created this distance. And I'm going to give you like a, a little bit of a, a narrative, a story just to make it a little bit more real. Uh, a couple of years ago or many decades ago, there, there was this um, aspiring triple jumper guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, like an incredible, remarkable guy. But Jonathan Edwards at school was uh, one of those all-round athletes, didn't know what to choose, where to go, how to go. And he was good at everything, uh, like really good at everything. But he had this passion for track and field. And he he had a special aptitude with, in, in the speed department that made him Exceptional at, at, triple jumping and he won the national schools title in the UK, but nothing more than that. Nothing. When you compare it to the US and you compare it to other countries in the world, he wasn't doing anything spectacular. And, uh, his parents and everyone agrees and decides he's a very smart, smart kid that he's going off to do a physics degree and he does goes off to do a physics degree. And, and that's pretty much the end of his track and field. But while he's at university, he's got this passion, this burning desire. He wants to be. An Olympian. He wants to be an Olympic athlete. And, uh, when he finishes his degree, he's now twenty-two, twenty-three 23 years old. Um, he makes a decision to become a professional athlete. Now, Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 23, the oldest, like, uh, start for a professional athlete that I've, I've ever heard of. Normally they start at six or seven, but he's going to be a professional athlete. And he commits himself for a full year in that context, in that life. And that life's very spot and it's very difficult. So now Jonathan Edwards is now one year full-time athlete and remarkably and almost miraculously he actually qualifies for the Olympics so it's like everyone is is dumbfounded like how do you actually achieve this or it's purely raw talent and in I think it was 1988 he goes off to uh, the Seoul Olympics and competes and he places 23rd in the world, the 23rd best triple jumper in the world with one year of full-time training. Unreal. Now, Jonathan's parents, what do you say to him? Jonathan's sibling, Jonathan's like friend, what do you say? You, you have to do this. This is, this is your calling. This is, it's a must. It's, it's your life. And, and Jonathan was certainly feeling the same way. I mean, success motivates more effort and, and more commitment. So. He decides now that this is his career path, this is his choice, and he commits another four years um to, to becoming the best of the best. Now he's the twenty-third best jump in the world. And he trains and he's it's it's better coaches and better trainers and better everything and more commitments and more like it's it's intense. Um all the sacrifices he's making. And What happens is he again qualifies for the Olympics. He's he's not doing anything spectacular outside of the Olympics, but uh, you know, give it, give it time. It's only been five years now. And, and Jonathan Edwards, he, he qualifies again, rush goes off to the Olympics and there's a lot of expectation. He came 23rd after one year of competing, five years of professional training. What is going to happen for Britain's, probably Britain's one of potentially their best jumpers. And what happens was not what anyone expected or anticipated. Jonathan ends stone cold last.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: The worst jumper at the Olympics. <laughs> now we, we we're confronted with the same question. It's like, what do what happened? you do? You know, it's easy to say, I want to be, I, I want to continue. If I was successful, it's very difficult to say, I want to continue. If after five years, you're going backwards after, I'm not talking five months, five weeks, five years. He's gone backwards. So now he's confronted with a decision and he's persistent. He has dreams and he has ambitions and he, he now throws himself in more. Maybe I wasn't doing enough and he pushed himself harder and harder and harder. And two years into his training process, he succumbs to the Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, so it's uh. the chronic fatigue virus. Yeah. It can manifest. It can kind of permutates into mono. And I've seen a lot of athletes dif- disappear of my career. Like literally they got, it's because you got to take at least a year off. um If you do fully recover or some of them don't fully recover Um any strenuous training, you get sick again. And, and Jonathan Edwards was in bed for weeks on end. So here's this reframing question. is like, now you've committed seven years. Now we're looking at seven years. It has gone from bad to worse. And you're okay. lying in bed with a virus that generally has ends or it's like a terminal virus for athletic careers. And you're sitting in bed. You've got to ask yourself the question is, was this all just a waste? But Jonathan Edwards, he's lying in bed. He said, he doesn't think in this context, like obstacle, failure, setback, disappointment. He thinks opportunity. Like it's an amazing psych- psyche to have is you at your darkest moment, your lowest point, And he's seeing this as opportunity. Because the opportunity that he'd never taken advantage of was the fact that he's got a physics degree. No one can analyze his technique better than him because he's fully invested and he's got the skill to do it. At the same time, he's never taken the time because he's been training to actually look at the footage of the best jumpers, look at his footage, create the comparisons. He's also never taken the time to look critically at his strength training programs and whether he's strong enough. And he went through this massive analysis whilst in bed of everything in terms of his technique and his strength and his profiles and where he's competing and where the – and he saw gaping holes. Incredible. And what what happens now is he makes a recovery, and it's the next year. Now it's eight years. Eight years he's gone backwards. And all of a sudden – the adaptations he makes due to that moments of darkness, that that mo that, that moments of fear, that moments of like everything's lost. But I'm going to see the opportunity embedded in this crisis. The next year, it's all starting to come together, and I think in the the second, it's very interesting because triple jump. No one's ever jumped over 18 meters up until that point. It's the world record was 17.97. Or, or something to that extent, 1797. And up until that point, like it's, it was this barrier, this, this wall that no one is going to get through. It's, it's impossible. The human capacity doesn't allow jumping past 80 meters. And in his second tournament back in the summer season around May, June, There was like a a very kind of big win factor, which means that any official results would be disqualified, or any results would be disqualified as official results. But in his second tournament back, or second competition back, he actually jumps 18 meters 43. No, it's like inconceivable how far he jumps. And with that, it's like every the entire eight years of failures and disappointments and setbacks. And, and those dark moments and questioning, why am I doing this? Who am I? Am I cut kind of out for this? Everything made sense because he kept refining, kept seeing the opportunity. And two weeks later, he officially breaks the world record. Um, it was seven, he beat it. It was 17 meters 98. And about a month or two later, he breaks the world record on two occasions. So now he's now the official uh the official world record holder who has jumped over 18. That's 18 meters, 16, and 18 meters, 29, um, in wow. one event. <laughs> incredible. The, the bottom, bottom line, he goes on to win a silver. He goes on to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And the world records that he set that year, a year after his darkest moments, those world records still stand to today. close. No wow.
0: That and is amazing.
1: When I talk about reframing this, this notion of reframing, it's, it's the ability to one press on. It's the ability to distance yourself saying it's these events are not there to derail me. It's not there to take my dreams away. It's, it's there to teach me a lesson. And if yes. I'm receptive to this lesson, I can change my life. And there's many stories that are, are in the book that are, are very similar, but it's a very, very powerful school, uh, school tool.
0: <laughs> a school, a school of thought, and yeah, school, and of, yeah. Thought. school of thought. Uh, amazing. A
1: fusion of, of statements.
0: <laughs> it is incredible. Wow, and thank you for sharing that. That's that's really that is something to, to live by. That is amazing. Moving on, and. If you have just tuned in, I am chatting to Richard Sutton, and we're talking about his latest book, Thrive, The Power of Resilience. And you talk about in the book, moving on in the book, DNA testing. And you are also, in fact, a co-developer of a DNA resilience panel. And this, this fascinated me. And as I say, the science just, uh, just goes way above my head. But, um, there is the concept of, of possessing genes that are more predisposed to resilience. And that, that amazed me because although you say the resilience is something we can learn and it's something that we are hardwired for and we can teach it to ourselves and, and, you know, reprogramming and all that, but but you say that there, there is the possibility that some people have more of these genes, some people have less, and you've, you've, you've studied this. You've, you, you've developed this panel. You've you, tell me about that.
1: So, so the the thing is that we inherit our uh, genes from our parents, and within the framework of being able to cope with challenge and change and stress. There's certain molecular systems, so certain systems within the brain, there's actually seven of those systems that contribute to our ability to moderate stress responses, the ability to control our emotional reactions, um, and the ability to really transcend the challenge of that moment. So there, there's certain systems that are, are well-designed and certain genes that contribute to those systems that Can support us in adversity and reduce vulnerability to challenge and, and, and adversity. So when looking at this, um, this panel that, that I co-developed with the analysis, we, we looked at 13 of the most influential genes, uh, that, that shape our future, shape our reality and, and, and support us in becoming more successful in our chosen endeavors. But what I also mentioned in the book is that, if you haven't inherited those genes, if you've inherited variants that are, are not that well-equipped um, to support us in, in adversity, it, it actually doesn't make that much of a difference because we have the power to influence certain behaviors, chemical behaviors, or hormonal behaviors, by choosing the right environments for ourselves. So by this, I mean that genes, yes, they contribute to a possible reality. But our environment has a greater contribute contribution to our reality than our genetic makeup and if you look at it from a behavioral standpoint, if you look at it from an emotional standpoint, the genetic contribution to the way we behave and the way we view the world is is around forty fifty percent or thirty to fifty percent from a cognition perspective it's a little bit higher, but that forty to fifty percent um, can be one can be augmented. So if you have the right set of genes by creating the right behaviors with the right set of genes, all of a sudden you can really bring about this full suite of capabilities. And if you have the negative variants, I have many negative variants. I have pretty much most of them. <laughs> um, you, you can create the right environment for yourself to transcend the limitations of your genetics because genetics, ultimately, genes are very influenced by the choices we make. So it does look at that and says, that yeah, there's a genetic influence. And if you've got a genetic um, predisposition towards heightened stress responses or an inability to focus or pay attention, if you have got that genetic inheritance, this is the environment you need to create for yourself, and this is how you can basically shape, shape your future in the way you would like to see it.
0: I know we're running short on time, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and I'm going to throw a complete spanner in the works. Do you not think that parents today, especially in in our community, and I'm really throwing a spanner in the works and playing devil's advocate, do you not think that regardless of DNA, regardless of anything, do you not think that the way that, that parents control everything that their children do, I mean, we place them in their environments, we mollycoddle them, we wrap them in cotton wool and bubble wrap, and we control pretty much everything that they do where they go, I mean, we don't really have a choice for that. We are pretty much preventing them and taking away the opportunity to learn resilience and to be resilient. We decide everything for them. We tell them how to think, what they're going to do, what they're going to learn, you know, what their choices should be. Aren't we taking that away from them? I think
1: I think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. Um, I think that as a parent, three little kids, um, I, I get it. So it's a, a very fine balance between creating the parameters and allowing for autonomy, uh, autonomy in experience, autonomy in choice, autonomy in life. So it it is a fine balance, and it's it's very difficult to achieve. And I think that the environment that we are creating for our kids is difficult. It's a difficult environment because we have such high expectations. We are so conformist. We also the greatest skill that they could possess in this world right now is is creative potential and innovation and seeing different realities that don't exist now. But we're putting them in environments that are very formulaic that as you mentioned probably don't teach them how to think to their in their greatest capacity. And I think it's changing. It certainly is changing. But this is my experience as a parent. So from a, a resilience standpoint, yeah, adversity, do you want to put them in an adverse environment? Absolutely not, because if it's the stress is too overwhelming, um, they're not fully developed and it it would break them. It actually compromises their resilience later in life. But if the stresses like exams and sports participation and social expectations, and if the stresses are at a level that they can cope with and they're being taught the skills in order to or support them in, in coping with with the challenges, and you're placing them in an environment that's warm and supportive and loving and, and doesn't have these demands and expectations that are unrealistic for a child who's who's just growing and evolving and and learning about the world, uh, I think I think that you can create. You have the potential to really positively shape um, the the lives of these little people. Um, but but yeah, it's it's. I think that it, all parents um, will say easier said than done. Very yeah. challenging.
0: But there does tend to be the potential for a lot of parents with a lot of adversity that our children come up against. A lot of parents are stepping in and creating a barrier between children and adversity when it comes to the simple things like kids being reprimanded by teachers those kids run home and they they tell their parents, oh, so and so shouted at me, and the parents go marching off to the school, and why did you shout at my child? I mean, it wasn't like that. In I mean, I sound ancient, but it wasn't like that in my day. You know, you just it was like, suck it up, no. um no. And
1: happened at different time, but but I mean, it, it came with its own, own complexities. Yeah. Um The time that we grew up in, it, it wasn't certainly not a utopia. Um, but, but yeah, so the thing is that now, now I'm going to defend the parents a little bit, um, is that, you know, a parental role at, at this point in time, life is complex, it's very demanding. What kids have placed on them today, um, I don't think an adult would cope with, um, it, their days are endless, um, the, the expectation to shoot the line. If you're not academic, you better be academic. If you're not sporty, you better be sporty. Like, you have no opportunity to be one, a child, and to be two, be yourself. You have to conform. Because if you don't conform, you're not going to get a university. If you're not going to get an education, you're not going to be successful. If you're not going to be successful, you're going to be dependent on us, your parents for the rest of your life. So, uh, you know, like this. <laughs> we don't <laughs> and, want that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so there's this absolute drive. And then you've got the social elements. You've got social media. Things are happening quickly and it's complex and it's, it's, it's a, it's a very harsh reality that a child lives in. So one has to ask the question, like, where does the parent step in and, and what is a parental role? The, the bottom, bottom line is that a parent's responsibility, the many responsibility, I'm not the expert parent at all. Um, but <laughs> a, a parent's if your responsibility. parent hasn't been born. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I feel I'm so bad, uh, but that's it. Trust me But, but we have a, we have a responsibility and we have a responsibility to buffer and protect our children. And there's four areas that we really have to, we have to stretch, stretch ourselves in. And one is, is the world is chaotic. It's out of control. Kids need to feel in control. And one is to provide an environment of control. That means defining the lines, you know, the famous analogy that all, all the rabbis use, Rabbi Tetz and Rabbi Mofson, where what is the game of tennis without those lines and net? So you, you create the lines, these are the parameters. This is what I want from you. This is the standard I want from you. This is the timeline you and I want you to go out and you you, you go and do it and then i 'm going to give you autonomy and then so you 've got the accountability and the autonomy that 's our responsibility as parents to to create both you can 't have autonomy with no accountability that creates an absolute like a, a very difficult child and too much accountability with no autonomy creates a very rigid and suppressive environment then we also have a responsibility to, to provide support and we've got to provide emotional support that we understand. We've got to provide instrumental support. We've got practical guidance, practical assistance. We also understand that we've got to provide informational support. Kids need to know context. they need to know what's going on around them and, and they've got to be informed. I think sometimes we might fall short on that. And we've got another responsibility which will help feel them like help create a, a very safe environment for them, and that is Justice perception. Kids need to feel that things are fair. All everyone does. It's one of the Absolutely. biggest stresses in the world. And and it's interpersonal respect and dignity is very important there. Mm-hmm. Informational again, um, equity. You know, so there's there's a whole bunch of of there's four factors. I'm not going to go into each factor in each detail, but there's four factors in terms of justice that are very important. Kids need to feel this the sense of of fairness and justice. And the final piece, and I think it's one of the most important pieces, and and that is what fundamentally motivates us and drives us in life and makes us do what we do, and that is to feel valued and feel recognized. Um, And if we feel that we're putting in all this effort to get these marks and these grades and we're putting all this effort, don't feel valued, I don't feel recognized there's not, nothing's ever enough and I'm trying to I'm looking for that approval, it's a tremendous stress source of stress um and challenge for children, so as a parent we've, we've got to create an environment where we say look you know, these are the growth opportunities for you this is where you're going, this is the growth opportunities in our relationship as a family this is, you know, uh, this is how we see you and we value you, you don't get the, you know, we value you even if you don't do well it's, as long as you're trying and, and you make an effort, so so If we can, if we can control these four elements and the four elements are give them a sense of control, uh, make them feel that things are fair. Um, If we can uh, create this environment of, of feeling valued and we can provide the support that, that is a fundamental role that, that, all that role that would be quite a, quite a different environment for children. So, Something I'm, I'm working on every single day, and I very seldom get it right. But
0: <laughs> I, I think you probably get it right a lot more often than you think.
1: Uh, I understand the side, so I, I'm trying to.
0: <laughs> I think you're probably doing really a great job, so um, I wouldn't put yourself down, <laughs> <laughs> Richard Sutton. Um, I think that that Thrive probably deserves an ongoing workshop rather than just a book to be honest, but um, it's been great chatting. We are unfortunately out of time. Where is the book available?
1: Uh, pretty much everywhere. So all, all big retailers, online platforms. Um, it hasn't been released internationally yet. only been released in yesterday. Uh, the international release will be a little bit later in the year. Um, yeah, so, so that's that's the availability.
0: Okay, great. So this is Thrive, The Power of Resilience. It's by Richard Sutton. Really go and get it. It's a fascinating read. And I think that it's something that we all need to know about. And if you don't understand the science, if you're like me, then you can skim that part and read the rest of it because you'll, you'll really understand the rest because I did. So (laughs) it's a fascinating book. I think it's something that we all need to understand and we all need to learn about and work on. And Thank you, Richard Sutton, for writing the book so that we can all get to know ourselves and get to know a little bit more about how we can thrive and be resilient in these very, very challenging times. And thank you for your time. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Dennis. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. And once again, look after yourself. Look after each other. Whatever you read, read a book.